We continue now to worship our God in the ministry of His Word. So I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, listen carefully as I begin reading this morning in verse 9. We're going to continue reading down to chapter 6, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, with the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have any lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong. Defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For the past number of weeks, we've been dealing with this subject of church discipline here in our ongoing study of 1 Corinthians. It's a topic that is probably new territory for some of us. It's a subject that is certainly challenging and thought-provoking for all of us. We saw in the opening verses of chapter 5 the reason why discipline was needed in the Corinthian church. And last Lord's Day, we looked in greater detail at the actual process of church discipline as outlined here in this chapter by the Apostle Paul and over in Matthew chapter 18 by the Lord Jesus Himself. And now this morning, as we continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians, we're going to discover an important limitation on discipline that the Corinthians had somehow misunderstood and that Paul is going to clarify in verses 9 to 13. Paul's primary focus up to this point in the chapter has been on our relationships inside of the church. But now in verse 9, he is going to redirect our attention to how those internal relationships speak volumes to non-believers who are on the outside looking in. 
And so with God's help, that's where we're heading this morning in, in the Word of God. Some final instruction on the limitations of church discipline. Then some important teaching in chapter 6 about how our handling of disputes will either help or hinder our public witness for Christ in the Gospel. Let's begin then with verses 9 to 13, a misunderstanding on the part of the Corinthians and a word of clarification from the Apostle Paul. Verse 9 of our text, we discover that the book we're currently studying is not actually the first letter that Paul had written to this ancient Christian church. As we know, this epistle is commonly called 1 Corinthians. Most likely, this letter is the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And it appears that Paul wrote four Corinthian letters in total, two of which were inspired by the Holy Spirit and are part of our New Testament, and two of which have been lost. As far as we know, no copies of Paul's initial letter to the Corinthian church have survived. But we do know that one of the subjects he addressed in that initial letter was church discipline and the need to maintain biblical standards in this area of sexual purity and sexual conduct. Because of the culture of ancient Corinth and the thousands of prostitutes who worked day and night in the city, sexual immorality was everywhere. And as Paul will tell us later on in chapter 6, many of the Corinthians had been delivered from a lifestyle of sexual sin and washed clean by the blood of Christ. But as we all know from personal experience, old habits die hard. The sin nature lives on even within Christians, and because of that reality, sexual sin was a persistent, ongoing problem in the Corinthian church. Here in chapter 5, Paul focuses in specifically on the sin of incest, a form of immorality that even the Greek pagans couldn't stomach, but the Corinthians struggled with many other sexual sins as well, such as fornication, adultery, prostitution, and homosexuality. And Paul, understanding the culture of this ancient city, understanding the besetting sins and temptations of these Christians, says to them in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, of course, Paul is referring in that verse to church discipline and excommunication, the need to break fellowship with those who fall into persistent patterns of unrepented sin. He had already instructed the Corinthians about their obligations in this area of discipline. But it seems as though his previous teaching in the previous letter had been misunderstood and misapplied by the Corinthian church. For starters, they were obviously not putting his instruction into practice, which is one of the reasons Paul is so frustrated in this letter. But it also seems that the Corinthians thought that Paul had taught them that they were to separate from non-believers outside of the church. This may have been a genuine misunderstanding on the part of the Corinthians, but it may also have been an intentional twisting of Paul's words by his opponents. But whatever the case may be, Paul wants to set the record straight once and for all. And so we read in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Somehow the Corinthian church had managed to get things exactly backwards just as we sometimes get things backward today. 
They were tolerating gross sexual immorality inside of the church, while at the same time they were isolating themselves from sexual sinners outside of the church. Paul is now writing to tell them isolation from the non-believing world and culture was the last thing on his mind when he wrote the letter. Because if that were the case, these Corinthians would need to pack their bags and leave the world altogether. If isolation from the world and the culture was God's intent for His church, He would need to rapture us up to heaven immediately after saving us. But as we all know, that is not what God has done. In His wisdom and His sovereignty, God did not immediately snatch us out of this world when we believed in Christ. No, He sent us into the world with a mission to accomplish and a great commission to fulfill. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." To isolate ourselves from the world, to separate ourselves from sinners outside of the church, is to isolate ourselves from our God-given mission and responsibility in evangelism and discipleship. That is why Paul is making the clarification at the end of chapter 5 with so much gusto. He realizes if we Christians get this wrong in our churches, our churches will fail in the task of reaching lost people in our communities and cities. Now, of course, God's mission will not fail. God is completely sovereign in the work of salvation. He has promised in His Word that not a single one of His elect people will be lost. But if we isolate ourselves from non-believers, we will fail. We will rob ourselves of the privilege of glorifying God through the ministry of evangelism and gospel proclamation. You know, isolation was a great temptation in the early church of the first century. It is still a temptation for the church today as Brad Morris reminded us in his message a couple weeks ago. Whenever the surrounding culture and society becomes hostile to our Christian faith and values, we will be tempted to veer off in one of two directions. Either we will batten down the hatches and retreat into the safety and security of our church buildings and Christian associations, or else we will sell ourselves out to the ungodly culture around us to minimize persecution and opposition to make ourselves more acceptable and more respectable to the non-believing world. These are the two temptations we face, brothers and sisters. And both of these ungodly impulses were at work in the Corinthian church with some of the strict members isolating themselves from non-believers and some of the liberal members compromising the gospel and selling out to a form of worldly wisdom for their own personal gain. Here in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has already addressed and reprimanded the worldly wise. But now in chapter 5, he has a word to say to the isolationists. Perhaps in a more traditional and conservative church like Rosedale, this is the part of Paul's teaching that will hit closest to home. The part of Paul's teaching that will challenge us the most. Here in North America, we are now living in a culture that is increasingly distant from its Christian moorings, a society that is increasingly hostile to the moral values and exclusive beliefs that we hold as evangelicals. 
And in days and years to come, as our culture continues to move further away from God's Word, we will face the temptation in our churches to protect our values and to minimize opposition and persecution by isolating ourselves from non-believers instead of striving to reach out to them with the Gospel of Christ. That impulse is going to grow especially strong, I think, as we observe other churches and other denominations that were once steadfast and unmovable in the truth, wavering and buckling under the continuous pressure of culture, and perhaps as we see some of our own members begin to stumble and to embrace moral positions that are in contradiction to the Word of God. Now, I don't say this in order to frighten you, Rosedale. I say it in order to prepare you. Because society is changing. And the days are coming and the days are now here when it will no longer be socially acceptable to be a biblical Christian. It will not be socially acceptable for you to take your stand on the authority of God's Word. As the cultural pressure grows stronger and stronger, each one of us, and collectively as a church, we will need to decide how to respond. Either to withdraw from the front lines and to silently retreat into our church buildings, or else to shine brightly as stars in the universe, holding out the word of life. My prayer, friends, for Rosedale Baptist Church is that we will continue to toe the biblical line, not isolating ourselves from our culture, not compromising with our ungodly culture, but remaining in the world without being of the world. That was the prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed in John 17 before He went to the cross and ascended to the Father. A prayer offered on behalf of His disciples and on behalf of the church in every age. I've given them your word, Jesus says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. And do not ask that you take them out of the world, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent them, sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Rosedale Baptist, it is Christ's desire that we be in the world, but not of the world. And the inspired apostle is warning us in this text not to judge non-believers in such a way that we would totally separate ourselves from them. We are not to become like the medieval monks who withdrew from society into their private monasteries. We are not to become like the early fundamentalists of the 20th century who withdrew from the seminaries and the places of cultural influence. We are not to become like the various Amish and Mennonite communities today that choose to live in a time warp that is cut off from the modern world. God's desire for the church is not that we would isolate ourselves from non-believing sinners and from our ungodly society, but rather that we would rub shoulders with non-believers, that we would befriend non-believers in such a way that we are sharing the truth of the gospel with them without compromising the values of the gospel. We don't merely need pastors and leaders and teachers in the local church. We need Christian doctors. We need Christian lawyers. We need Christian factory workers, Christian cashiers, Christian mothers, Christian piano teachers. We need Christians all through our society. Every one of us in this room today has a role to play right where God has sovereignly put you. In your job. On your street. In your school. 
in your community. And what we need to do, brothers and sisters, is simply to open our eyes and to see the many opportunities God has put right in front of us in the daily rhythms of life and then to do something about it. Or as Henry Blackaby likes to put it, to look where God is working around us and then to join Him in that work. I think Brad's challenge to us a couple weeks ago was great preparation for our study this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians. It was a challenge for each and every one of us to become go-and-tell Christians and not merely come-and-see Christians. Men and women who will not isolate ourselves from non-believers and sinners, but rather Christians who will take the necessary steps to go out into the world to declare the Gospel to them. To tell them about Christ. One of the dangers we face in judging non-believers outside of the church is this isolationist tendency we've been talking about. But there is a second danger I want to briefly mention this morning, and it is the danger of dominionism. Dominionism is the opposite extreme of isolationism, but it is really a, a symptom of the same root problem, which is this tendency to judge the sin of non-believers rather than leaving that judgment to God. There are some Christians who tend to judge non-believers by isolating themselves from them. On the other end of the spectrum are those who try to Christianize society by force or by rule of law. At times, the Church of Christ has veered off in this direction to such a degree we've been distracted from our main mission of evangelism and discipleship. Christians in the early church did not live in democracies like we do today in North America. For the first 300 years of her history, the church had very little direct influence on politics, very little political leverage with which to change the status quo. Christians in the early church lived under the harsh pagan rule of dictators and emperors, but all of that changed in the 4th century when an emperor named Constantine suddenly converted to the Christian faith and began the process of Christianizing the Roman Empire by the rule of law. Within the span of a few short years, the church of Jesus Christ went from being politically impotent and persecuted to being powerfully allied with the emperor himself. Ever since that historic turning point in the 4th century, Christianity in the Western world has exerted tremendous political influence on our surrounding society. And for much of our history, there has been no separation of church and state and very little religious freedom. For well over a millennium, powerful Catholic and then Protestant governments in Europe sought to Christianize their countries by force and by legislation, forcing parents to baptize their infant children, Forcing people to go to church on Sunday. Passing various laws that imposed a strict moral code on all the citizens, whether they were saved or not, whether they agreed with it or not. This historic marriage of the church and state had some very positive effects on society that all of us could applaud, but it also had some very negative consequences, which you will discover if you study the history of Europe or the history of our own Baptist and Puritan forebears, men and women that wanted the freedom to worship God according to their own conscience and convictions and not according to the dictates of the state church. And as a result, many hundreds of godly men and women went to prison. Many hundreds, if not thousands, lived their lives in exiles and many died as martyrs. Today, by and large, there is a separation between the church and the state in the Western world. There is a spirit of religious freedom and tolerance, and we can all be thankful for that. 
About a year ago, I preached a short series of messages on the relationship between the church and the state. If you're interested in learning what the Bible says about that subject, I would encourage you to go on our church website, listen again to those messages from Mark chapter 12 and Romans 13, because we covered this subject in great detail. Although it is certainly good and right for Christians to be politically engaged and to use the mechanisms of democracy to promote Christian values and laws that will benefit all members of our society, there is also a subtle danger that we need to avoid. That is the danger of putting our hope and our trust in politics rather than putting our hope and trust in Christ and the Gospel. Laws that reflect biblical values have the benefit of restraining wickedness and promoting human dignity and flourishing, but we must never make the mistake of thinking that those laws in and of themselves will change the heart of non-believers or usher in the kingdom of God. We could outlaw murder, for example, but we can never banish hatred from the human heart. Only God can do that. We can take steps to outlaw abortion, and I think we should, but we cannot banish self-centeredness from the human heart. Only God can do that. We can pass laws against certain forms of sexual sin, but we cannot banish lust from the human heart. Only God can do that. Christians who live in a modern democracy, I'm in full favor of political engagement. If you know me at all, you already know that. But we must be careful, church, not to think that politics and legislation can change hearts and bring salvation to lost people. They cannot. At best, our politics and our laws can only coerce behavior through the fear of punishment and the prospect of reward, but no piece of political legislation, however good it may be, however righteous it may be, will ever change a single human heart or raise the spiritually dead back to life because that is something only God can do and something that will only be done through a supernatural miracle of regenerating grace. So friends, as important as politics are in promoting moral values and the welfare of our society as a whole, let us never allow our engagement with politics and law to distract us from our main task as Christians, which is evangelism, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, the preaching and the teaching of God's Word, the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified. We isolate ourselves from non-believers. We will fail in our duty to evangelize. But if we put all of our trust in the Christianization of society through politics and legislation, we will also fail. Genuine transformation comes from the inside out. It does not come from the outside in. If you truly want to see our society transformed for the glory of God, the best thing that you can do, the best thing that I can do, is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to speak often about Christ. When Paul tells us not to judge outsiders in verse 12, he's not saying that we should never denounce the sins of society, nor is he saying that we should forget about politics. What he's telling us here is that we should not separate ourselves from non-believers in the way that God has called us to separate ourselves from rebellious and unrepentant Christians. Church discipline is not for unbelievers outside of the church. It is for Christians inside of the church. That's the point Paul is making in this text. 
Brothers and sisters, it is so easy for us to get things backwards when it comes to discipline and separation, to berate the immorality and sin we see outside of the church among those who do not have the Spirit of God while we tolerate and wink at immorality inside of the church among those of us who do have the Spirit of God. Let us not forget, unbelievers outside of the church are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are morally unable to do what is pleasing to God. They are slaves to sin. They are held captive by the enemy. They're prisoners of war. That is not the case with Christians who have been brought from death to life by the grace of God. So let's make sure, church, that we get this straight. God's job is to deal with the sins of non-believers outside of the church. Our job is to clean house inside of the church and to keep our main focus on evangelism and discipleship. Well, now we've come to the conclusion of Paul's teaching on church discipline. As we turn the page and move into chapter 6, we see that Paul has something more to say about church disputes. Chapter 5 is about how we're to handle discipline in the church. Chapter 6 is about how we're to handle disputes in the church. You know, it's impossible for us to say what specific issue prompted Paul to write those first 11 verses of chapter 6. Very strong words. Very sarcastic words. But evidently, some of the Christians had decided to resolve their internal arguing through litigation and through lawsuits. Instead of dealing with internal conflict privately and discreetly through the biblical process we learned about last time, the Corinthians were instead airing their dirty laundry in the public courtroom for all to see, and in the process, they were once again exposing the name of Jesus Christ to public scorn and disgrace. And once again here in chapter 6, it is just blatantly obvious the fundamental problem that the Corinthians are wrestling with is the problem of worldliness presence of worldly wisdom in the church, a lingering desire in the church to be loved and accepted and applauded by an ungodly society. Although there are many parts of the Bible that seem very foreign and culturally distant to our experience today, I think that the problem highlighted by Paul in this chapter is a problem that every one of us can identify with in our North American context. This is a culture, this is a society that is absolutely obsessed with the defense of personal rights, fighting tooth and nail for whatever it is we think we deserve. Don't know about you, I find it a little bit telling that as soon as I cross the border into Buffalo, some of the very first billboard signs I see along the side of the road are advertisements for personal injury lawyers who are ready and willing to sue. And then you turn on the TV. Have you ever watched cable? You flip through those various channels on cable. It is unreal how many courtroom television shows there are. We could easily waste an entire day or entire week watching angry, jaded people yelling at one another, accusing one another of wrongdoing, suing one another for the most trivial and insignificant things. We are living in a culture today that is extraordinarily litigious. A society where our first impulse when we are wronged is to slug it out in court, to sue our opponents for all they're worth, to defend our personal rights at any cost, and if possible, to get a little money as we get our revenge. It may surprise you. In ancient Corinth, things were not that different from North America in this respect. 
was a litigious culture. People loved to sue one another. People loved to go to the courthouse for entertainment like we love to sit down and watch Judge Judy. In this commentary on 1 Corinthians, the Scottish theologian William Barclay gives helpful insight about this part of ancient culture, and here's what he says. Barclay writes, The ancient Greeks were naturally and characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were in fact one of their chief amusements and entertainments. Going to law was closely bound up with Greek life. We know the details of Athenian law, and when we study them, we see what a major part the law courts played in the life of any ordinary citizen. The situation in Corinth would not be so very different from that at Athens. If there was a dispute in Athens, the first attempt to settle it was by a private arbitrator. In that event, one arbitrator was chosen by each party, then a third was chosen by agreement between both parties to be an impartial judge. If that failed to settle the matter, there was a court known as the Forty. The Forty referred the matter to a public arbitrator, and the public arbitrators consisted of all citizens in their 60th year. Any man chosen as an arbitrator had to act whether he liked it or not under penalty of law. If the matter was still not settled, it had to be referred to a jury court, which consisted of 201 citizens for cases involving less than 50 pounds. Okay, Barclay was British, so I guess maybe $150. Or 401 citizens for cases involving more than that, that figure. There were indeed cases when juries could be as large as anything from 1,000 to 6,000 citizens. Can you imagine that? Barclay concludes, he says, it's plain to see in a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer. Every person spent a great part of his time either deciding or listening to legal cases. The Greeks were famous and notorious for their love of going to court. I think that's a very helpful description of the ancient world. It helps us to understand the kind of thing that Paul and the Corinthians were up against. Just as the loose sexual morals of Corinth had seeped into the church, so this culture of rampant litigation had made its way into the family of God, and instead of following God's pattern for conflict resolution, the Corinthians were following the course of worldly wisdom. They were dealing with their disputes just like non-Christians. You remember last Sunday, we took the time to review the biblical process for conflict resolution, and we learned in Matthew 18 that Christians are to make every effort to solve our disagreements peacefully and discreetly. First of all, dealing directly with the person who has offended and sinned against us, trying at all costs to keep the sphere of involvement as small as possible for as long as possible. But eventually, if those efforts at private reconciliation are unsuccessful, the church leaders are to get involved in the dispute. And if that approach is unsuccessful, formal discipline is to be brought by the congregation in an effort to promote repentance and reconciliation. This is how Jesus taught us how to deal with disagreements in the church. But in Corinth, church discipline was not being practiced at all. As Paul tells us in verse 8, some of the Corinthians were wronging one another. Some of them were defrauding one another. It means they were stealing from one another. Apparently, none of the guilty parties in the church were being held to account for their actions. I'm sure many of the Corinthians were frustrated, and because of that, they were taking matters into their own hands. They were going to the public courthouse. They were airing the dirty laundry of the church for all of the non-believers to see. 
The gospel witness in Corinth was being ruined through litigation. Paul is horrified by the believer of the Christians, as we can tell by the words he writes in this chapter and by the tone in which they are written. Aside from the complete lack of Christian love in this church, Paul's main concern was how the sinful behavior of these litigious members was impacting the testimony of the church as a whole. And so we see in verses 1-9 to a series of rhetorical questions that are intended to shame the believers to help them see the folly of their way. Paul's main argument here in these verses is an argument from the greater to the lesser. We see it most clearly in verse 2 of our text. Paul writes, do you, not, do you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And when Paul speaks here in these verses about Christians judging the world and judging the angels, he is not contradicting the principle of non-judgment that we just talked about from the previous chapter. Paul is not speaking here about judgments we make in this life about non-Christians. Rather, he is referring here to that future day of judgment when God will judge the living and the dead. Although the Bible does not go into great detail about this matter of future judgment, there are several verses scattered throughout God's Word that suggest that we as Christians will somehow participate in that judgment, that God will somehow share His rule with us and call us up for jury duty on that great day. And Paul is saying here, our future assignment in judging fallen angels and the world shows that we are more than capable of working through petty conflicts and disputes in the here and now. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser, and Paul's point carries a strong punch. You see, in Paul's mind, the Corinthians should be ashamed of themselves. They're entrusting justice to the very men who will one day stand in God's courtroom with all of the saints sitting in the jury. And if we Christians are unqualified, if we're unable to deal with petty conflicts in the local church, how on earth will we ever serve as jury members on that future day when the non-believing world will stand guilty before a holy God? It's a disgrace. It's a shame, Paul says. The point can't be missed. As a general rule, Christians should not be suing one another and taking one another to court because in doing that, we are ruining our witness for Christ and we are undermining our credibility in the eyes of a watching world. Paul wants the Corinthians to know and for us to know there is never a winner when one Christian sues another. He puts it in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Whether or not you win a verdict, whether or not you successfully defend your rights, whether or not you stand up on your own two feet is utterly irrelevant because you have already sacrificed in the secular courtroom what is most important. Far better, Paul says in verse 7, to suffer wrong. Far better to be defrauded than to drag the name of Jesus Christ through the mud and to prove your own incompetence in this area of judgment and conflict resolution. Biblical principle in these verses is crystal clear, friends. It is wrong and it is sinful for Christians to take other Christians to court. But you know something? 
Once that principle has been stated, once that principle has been brought out into the open, it doesn't take long for the gears to start turning and we realize there are going to be some exceptions, some qualifications. We must, for example, clarify here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is not in any way deprecating the civil authority or saying that our secular courthouses are wrong and sinful in and of themselves. Now, I'm not too sure about you, but I, for one, thank God we have civil government. I thank God we have a judicial process here in Canada, imperfect as it may be. And I also know from inspired Scripture that the Apostle Paul felt the same way about the Roman authorities in his own day. Over in Romans 13, the same Apostle tells us we are to be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. You see, the Apostle Paul believed and understood government leaders and judges in our courts are appointed by God these men and women play a vitally important role in our society. It is a role that reflects to some degree the justice and the government of God Himself. Christian men and women, God expects us to honor and respect judges and governing officials He has put in place to view them as His servants. And even if we do not like the leaders themselves, even if we feel the leaders are acting foolishly and wickedly, we are still to respect them for the sake of the office. And so don't, please don't walk away from the message this morning thinking that the Apostle Paul was some kind of anarchist who wanted to do away with the government and the judicial process because that is not his point. I hope it's obvious to all of us, non-believers outside of the churches will need to make use of the court system in order to settle their disagreements with one another. At time, we Christians will have little choice but to go to court. For example, if a non-believer sues us and takes us to court, we have a legal obligation to go before the judge to work through the conflict as best that we can according to the laws of the land. There are also times in this broken, fallen world of ours when Christians will have little choice but to go to court with other Christians. Probably the prime example of this is when one Christian divorces another Christian. Or when a Christian parent is in desperate need of child support from another parent who is not fulfilling their responsibility. These types of situations involving divorce and custody disputes are always tragic, but because the disillusion of marriage involves the secular government, there will be situations when one Christian will have little alternative but to go to court and to appear before a judge. Another important qualification we need to recognize in chapter 6 is that Paul is speaking mainly about civil law in this chapter and not about criminal law. Paul is not saying here in these verses that Christians who commit serious crimes against other Christians or against the secular authority should not face punishment and justice for what they have done. God forbid if one professing Christian was ever to physically or sexually assault another Christian in the church, or if a child was assaulted or abused by another Christian, we would immediately and without hesitation, turn that person over to the secular authority, even as we exercise church discipline and work for the spiritual restoration of that person in the church. You know, as a pastor, I have a legal responsibility. I have a moral responsibility to report cases of abuse to the authorities. I would not hesitate to do so 
if I was ever in that situation. Just as it would be wrong for the secular government to interfere in the government of the church, so it is wrong for the church to interfere with the temporal authority of the state. God in His sovereign wisdom has ordained two spheres of authority in our society, the church and the state. And each one of those two spheres must be careful not to overstep His boundaries and to impinge inappropriately on the other. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Jesus was distinguishing between two spheres of authority and if Jesus made the distinction, we need to make it too. General principles almost always need to be qualified and Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians contains exceptions and qualifications. But that being said, do not allow the exceptions... Do not allow the qualifications to cloud or to detract from the power of the principle itself. Because at the end of the day, this is the standard of conduct God wants us to strive towards and to attain. And the fact remains, brothers and sisters, it is almost always sinful and unwise for one Christian to go to court with another Christian because God has shown us a better way. Even if that better way means that we need to suffer loss and to give up our rights. You know, we've grown very accustomed here in Canada to having personal rights. We're very accustomed to having legal rights. Very often, the least infraction of our rights infuriates us. It sends us on an immediate quest for justice and retribution. And in the light of that cultural reality, I think one way our text speaks powerfully to our society and challenges us personally here in the church is in this strident and uncompromising demand for personal rights. Paul tells the Corinthians something in these verses that is not easy for any of us to hear. There are situations in this life and in this world where giving up your rights and where suffering injustice is the very best thing that you can do. Now for me, the most challenging, the most painful words in the entire chapter are found in verse 7, where Paul poses those two questions to the church. Why not rather suffer wrong? How would we normally answer that? Because it's my right, that's why. Why not rather be defrauded? It's my right. No, it's not. That's about as countercultural as it comes. I find that verse difficult. I find that verse challenging. I'm sure, the Corinthians found it difficult and challenging too. There are times when laying down our rights and putting aside our demands for instantaneous justice is the right thing to do, and that is especially so when it comes to our public testimony for Christ. And so the next time, Christians, we feel that someone has wronged us or defrauded us, instead of asking whether or not we have the legal right to seek retribution and the legal right to seek compensation, perhaps we should just pause for a moment. Perhaps we should ask whether our response to this injustice will reflect well on the Lord Jesus. Because when you really stop and think about it, our ultimate example in this area of personal rights and justice is not the Apostle Paul. It's the Lord Jesus Himself. Perfect man who willingly laid down His rights 
so that he might come into this sin-cursed world and to suffer terrible injustice at the hands of his creation, to die on the cross in the place of lost and hopeless sinners like you and like me. And if our Lord Jesus had stubbornly insisted on his rights, the way that you and I often insist on our rights, the truth is he would never have come into this world in the first place. And if he had never come into this world in the first place, the truth is you and I would be eternally lost in our sins. We would be on the highway to hell. And so I leave you this morning with these inspired words from the Apostle Peter that we read at the beginning of the sermon. Words that focus our attention on the example of Christ. The power of the Gospel at work in us. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might live to sin, die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Amen.